You're listening to Standing Before the Mass podcast with Chris Eaton, sponsored by Newport Nautical Supply. Please be sure to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You may also connect directly at chrisheaton.substack.com. Hey folks, how's it going? Welcome to the latest episode of the podcast. My guest for this episode is Matt Cohen. Matt is a professional marine photographer. Now, I've known Matt for probably the better part of a decade uh, on and off, and I would see him in Newport, and then he'd disappear, and then I'd see him again. What I didn't know was that he was really busy building his career as a marine photographer. When he disappeared, he was sailing tens of thousands of miles offshore. He was going on adventures. He was taking photos, maybe for stock use or for a commission. So finally, Matt and I connected at one point and I said, hey, you know, we should sit down for a chat. And our schedules aligned recently and that's what we did. Matt gives us his sailing history. We talk about his early introduction to sailing through a college program. Then he talks about his introduction to photography and how it changed the course of his life. Matt had the opportunity to work alongside Anna Vanderwall, who for some of my astute listeners will recall he was an early guest. And then we talk about our mutual love of helicopters and Matt highlights their value in marine photography, even with the ubiquitous appearance of drones. Matt surprises me with the fact that he's also a glider sailplane pilot in training and we talk a bit about that in this podcast. Matt talks about his time aboard as a photojournalist before the term really took root and became a proper role. Matt has commissioned works in offices in New York City. We get into his approach to the art and business aspects of the role of a marine photographer. He tells us about a very memorable few nights staying and shooting photos in the remote Sakonet Lighthouse. Matt beautifully weaves his work history with his sailing history, and lets us in on the direction he's steering his career. We sat back with a couple of fat tire classic ales and caught up. They don't sponsor this podcast in any way, and some of the noises of our bottles may have snuck through the edit, so I thought I'd at least mention it. To learn more about Matt, check out his webpage at cohenphotography.com. That's C-O-H-E-N photography.com. From there, you can also link to his social media sites and follow along. Just looking at his client list will blow you away, almost as much as the beautiful images of his work. I hope you enjoy. Okay. Where do you want to start? Um, <laughs> chronologically, that's my whole life as a okay. photographer. Yeah, Everything's chronological. Yeah, let's. Uh, uh, obviously, you've been boating your whole life. For the most part, yeah. I mean, I think my earliest introduction was my uncle. I, I could say that I attribute my sailing at a young age to my uncle, like throwing me onto a sailfish in Cape Cod for a couple of days, not knowing what the heck was going on. And then he was also a... Uh, really avid windsurfer. Hmm. So I learned to windsurf before I learned to sail. And then my grandfather, my uncle's father was a sailor. Um, he had a beautiful, uh, Katana 27, which was a sloop cutter rig day sailor, not very minimum made, made here in Rhode Island. Um, just east of Bar Harbor. Hmm. And I would go visit him, uh, in summers and he sort of taught me the ropes from there, I got into other sports, sail, racing or offshore sailing was not really on my radar. And then I went to Roger Williams and fell in love with dinghy racing. Right. That, that was, so I, I started in architecture. I was destined to become an architect by like age of 10 because of my grandfather, the sailor was an architect mm-hmm. and my other, other uncle is a 
furniture maker, the one who taught me how to sail, windsurf, I should say. And my other uncle is a city planner. So the whole design arts world came from my, basically from my father's side. Mm. And then um, I liked architecture, but it wasn't, it wasn't for me. It was battling with calculus and it wasn't <laughs> a great environment. It really was, it's kind of, they call it arca torture for, you know, <laughs> for certain reasons. And I just had no social life. So I switched, um, I enjoyed psychology, developmental, and that allowed me to sail. And when I started sailing, I was there every day. Really? All yeah. practices. I think I missed like 10 practices in four years. Mm. And that was my jam. That was, I was there all the time. I wasn't the fastest sailor. I wasn't the captain, but I loved it. Mm. So, and, so you know the racing rules. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, I'm still not the best at rules. No. I, I'm more of a speed freak, but like, um, and just being in the elements and, and Roger Williams was at, when we started, we were kind of like the bad news bears. Like <laughs> it, it, we were, we didn't, we had a coach, but he didn't really know how the sailing circuit, the dinghy circuit or college recruiting and, um, beer cans falling out of his van. <laughs> <laughs> we, you know, we, it was a struggle. We, we had like this great facility, this great venue, one of the best venues in college sailing in our batter back door. But we and the, the sailors, the students realized that we just had to sell it to the AD. Mm. So we had to go through years of trying to convince them to buy boats, trying to convince them to buy sails, spars. Like, it's not like the basketball team where you like, hey, we need some sneakers and basketballs to go on a trip. We need like thousands of dollars mm. to compete. And so over the years, we went through coaches, Scott Leppard, Matt Lindblad, and then um, Amanda Callahan, who just has just dominated the the school and college are going to take us from bad news bears to consistently top 10 for the past 15 years. Mm. So, wow. That's, um, that's a great feather in the cap in terms of my sort of sailing history. Cool. Yeah. I imagine now what are there different? I don't know much about college sailing cause I never did it. Is there, uh, are there different leagues and um, divisions, divisions, I guess is the right word. Um, no, it's all one. It's, Mm. it's all NCAA varsity sports nationwide, but there's different, there's different regions. Mm. So there's NISA, which is New England Intercollegiate Sailing Association. There's, uh, Southern Atlantic. There's basically having four different sectors and regions around the country. Mm. So you have different levels of regatta. So like basic level, you have an invite. So like say URI invites Roger Williams to come over there and it's, kind of like a low level entry regatta and you send your kind of like your sea skippers there to, for practice and experience. And then you have, you know, higher ranking regattas like the shell that happens at MIT or these high ranking regattas for, to boost you and put you in place for nationals. Hmm. And that's where you send your a skippers and your a crew because it's two person per boat. Right. Skipper and a crew. So I started off crewing, not knowing what I was doing. And then <laughs> spring break, um, cause that's crew is when you, if you're not that skilled in speed or tactics, right. You start off as a crew. Yeah. You're more of like the inner workings. And what boats are you sailing at this FJs. point? FJs. They've always been FJs. Yep. Our first FJs were Coast Guard's old boats and you could see through the fiberglass. <laughs> <laughs> they were so soft and so not competitive. I was going to say it was a weight, you know, it was a weight savings there, but no, it was no. also a structural issue. <laughs> structural integrity <laughs> out the window. So that goes back to us trying to like 
raise money to buy hopefully new boats, which yeah. was huge. So then I, I remember having spring break trick. I went to the, the piercing pagoda in the mall to get a, a loop pierced on my upper cartilage, my like rebellious college fun stuff. Oh, right. Oh, I got you. And now. then like the next day at practice, so, like the Vang caught it and like ripped it out. And I was oh. like, I don't want an earring ever again. And <laughs> I don't want to be crew. <laughs> so I switched to a skipper and I was much happy because I'm six two and mm. like, you can stretch out and you can use your weight much better. And it was a more challenging. Mm. So six, six, two is like hard to get between the centerboard trunk and the vang and the boot. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I did it girl right after college and she had sailed for Boston college. She was crew, not, not skipper, but mm-hmm. I remember telling her about stretching out. <laughs> yeah. R- raking way out. And I still go back. I still get invited to the alumni regatta. So. It's, oh, really? Yeah. Oh, this, good. So I think the, I've been to 15 of them, I think. Not wow. also in a row, but because of work and traveling. But yeah, they're great. They're still in the same boats. They put on a big, like a great show for the alumni. And mm. um, it's called the, the the Captain's Cup. Are they still using the same boats? Yeah. Well, not the same boats, but still the same model. Model. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> not the old Coast Guard boats from 1986. <laughs> right. Not that boat. No, right. no. Not that model. So it's a well-funded program now. Uh, Roger Williams now. It's, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's well-established. Yeah. We've come a long way. The, you know, it was like boats, coaches, sails, equipment, boathouse. Um, I mean, we could, we could still have the podcast just on the school, but like mm. our first boathouse was this like tiny shed underneath the maintenance shed where like lawnmowers and tractors would be right. rumbling on the floorboards above us. Oh man. And now we have this $2.5 million boathouse notched into the side of the wall, like right at the dock. Wow. It's, if you, if you or anyone wants to go up there and check it out, it is, is a stunning first class boathouse for college sailing mm. or hosting other regattas like U.S. Sailing hosts regattas there because of the facilities are top notch. And we've come a long way from when I started in 98, 99 is when I joined the team. All right. And how, do, how does Roger Williams rank in the grand scheme, in the, at least or in this Northeastern division? I saw a post... And I think it was nationals because nationals is in the spring. I think we were placed second in the country. Hmm. And I don't know if this was mid regatta or whatever. I saw this in a flash on, I think it was Facebook, Instagram, but we're usually in the top 10, 15. I mean, consistently again, Amanda Callahan is just is a force and is amazing. So cool. She's brought this place pretty far. So after, after college, how did you advance your boating career? So before I graduated, I was, you know, lined up to be a psychologist Mm. and I got to a point since I was there for five years, NCAA only allows eight semester of eligibility in a varsity sport. So I couldn't race or I couldn't compete my last year and I had more free time. And that's when I fell in love with photography. And because I took a, I, I loved shooting and I enjoyed it, but I didn't really know what I was doing technically. So I took a photo one-on-one class and developing the roles and in the dark rooms and the enlargements was awesome. I was in the dark room all the time. I was going to say late nineties, we're still in um, 35 Film. millimeter territory. Yeah. Yeah. But even if, even like photo one-on-one, you had to shoot with film because mm. of the principles of apertures and settings and ISOs and all that tech. So, and it's, 
kind of like, I wouldn't say four years of psychology went out the window, but like, (laughs) (laughs) but I knew from that moment of those enlargements, I got a ride to go help do a sunset sale on 12 meter Nefertiti. Oh, nice. And they hoisted me up the rig and those enlargements are, I still have them. They're fantastic. And at that point I was like, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. I knew it carved in stone. I also knew that I could use the psychology for, to support all this because people will make up the world. If you understand people, whether you're a carpenter or a sailor or a school nurse or whatever you are, if you understand people, you'll do just, you'll do just fine mm-hmm. in whatever your vocation or field is. So I went with that, I, that sort of MO at that point when I was still at school, I actually worked for Anna Vanderwall oh, right. for a couple of years and he was an early guest. Yeah. <laughs> early days. So, and he, he was an inspiration. I mean, one of the best, I would say top 10 in the, in the world. Mm. And I basically went up to him at an event, Swedish match racing tour. And I said, can I, is there anything I can help you with, with your business? Mm. He's like, can you drive a boat? And I was like, yeah, I've been doing it all my life. He's like, fine, great. I'll give you a call. And I was slated to do bow on a mum 30 and I had just started racing. So to do bow on a mum 30 was awesome. Right. It was badass. It was like, yeah. I was stoked. And this was in the fall, the beginning of the fall. And then Anna called me and said, can you drive for me for the Museum of Elite and Class Regatta? And I was like, I passed off the bow to my friend and I went with that. So I worked for Anna for two years. Oh, cool. And I was his chase boat driver, gallery assistant, location assistant for, and worked in the office. Mm-hmm. And, and then I got the itch to go on my own, mm-hmm. um, which two years is pretty kind of like, I guess standard or even max in terms of like how much or like an apprenticeship or yeah, or <clears throat> it was like, it was like a year and a, it was like a six months as an apprentice and then a year and a half of working. But I think he got the, the notion that I was hungry for more. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, you're good. Get out of here, kid. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, and I was sold. Like I said, that's all I want to do for the rest of my life. I was, I didn't want to do anything else. Um, I was, and I, devoted myself to doing everything in the marine industry that could support the photography. Mm. I was full a head instructor at Sail Newport in the summer. Right. I would do yacht deliveries in the spring and fall to and from the Caribbean. I'd go back to the Caribbean for shooting stock photos and exploring and racing regattas as a bowman or before the term became popular, like the onboard reporter. Mm. So I was taking right. stills during the regattas as a bow person and when you're a bowman, you're like, you have all the best angles. You're like the little monkey that can go up the rig or on the bow. Right. And, um, and you didn't find the job too busy that you couldn't do the photos or you were able to balance both. Yeah. I think, you know, uh, I basically told the owner or the captain that, um, this is what I do. I'm good at both. Do you have any issues with me? Um, you know, bringing the camera on board. And he's like, mm-hmm. no. And I made sure that he's like, if you did, if, if he did, then I wouldn't bring the camera on board right. or I wouldn't, I wouldn't do the job. Um, but I found little tricks of the trade that allowed me to get the shots, but it's still, you know, safety is precedent. So I wasn't going to put anyone in a bad place or 
I mean, if it, I never broke any cameras, but I was going to say that that would be my thought. Like, <laughs> you know, you have to switch from ro- one roll to the other. And it's like, what do I do with the camera? It's well, going to land just, in a safe spot. I just stay with 36 images yeah. <laughs> and that was it. Oh, right. <laughs> Take your time and sitting there fumbling with lenses and yeah. rolls of film and light exposures and salt and spray. Like, mm. um, no, it wouldn't happen. So you get ready to do a spinnaker douse. You put this, you stuff the camera in like a durate or something like that, or, <laughs> or like a big padded cooler right at the companion way. Right. And when you're on a big boat and you're on a, you know, a 30 mile leg, you have time to go right. to lunch or yeah. run, just hang out in the companion way for a minute, get a couple shots and then put it away yeah. and go back to the work. It's and, not like buoy racing. Yeah. No. And as it got better, I found better ways of, being able to shoot, bu- shoot buoy racing on board. Mm. Um, I think I cleared 30, 35,000 ocean miles in 10 years. Wow. I, it was spring and fall deliveries on big boats, small boats. 2006 was a big year at sea. 2014 was a big sea travel year. Mm. 2006, I did uh, two back-to-back transatlantic crossings and then seven weeks in the Pacific. Wow. Um that was pretty much nonstop too. I mean, I did a few flights to go home and whatnot, but uh, mm. it was three months straight. How big are these boats you're doing the transatlantic side? First crossing was, I mean, I got pretty, I'm, not to toot my own horn, but I got pretty <laughs> lucky on my first crossing. It was a 108 foot Fontaine design alloy. Mm. I mean, my cabin was almost the size of this podcast room. Wow. And it was, I mean, there was lots of varnish. Like you don't drop stuff. Right. Um, and it was Kush yeah, <laughs> or yeah. Posh, as they say. Right. Um, and that was from Fort Lauderdale, Quick Stop Bermuda, the Azores for provisions, and then finishing in Cascais, Portugal. Wow. Nice. And then hung out in Portugal for a little bit. It was pretty cool because I, I brought all my gamma gear and we pulled into the port. There was this huge sign for the Swedish match tour happening right there. So I got off the dock, got accredited as a you know, photographer press and then worked on the boat for a couple of days, found a hostel and then shot that. And that was one of my coolest onboard experiences because the Swedish match forties have a judge's position. And I love to shoot during during practice Mm. because it's low pressure for the racers and they don't care that you're there, but they're in racing mode. Right. So, and the judge's seat is on the transom and it's this big, stainless steel cage basically when these boats spin at the starting sequence you're holding on Mm. and i would wear a harness and clip in so i'd have a hand for me and a hand for the camera or a hand for the camera body and have a hand for zooming and controlling the settings on the camera and still stay steady or triangulated in this little cage where the umpires would sit during racing Mm. and then i flew home and then i flew to england and then motored a... Would have been shorter just to go from Portugal to England. <laughs> well, I wasn't paying the bill. I'm not a geography expert. <laughs> but, and then I took a really cool, famous powerboat. It's a boat called Fredrikstad. And it was a 75-foot ocean-class or ice-breaking fishing resource boat. I think I've heard of that boat. She's been here a lot of time in the shipyard. Yeah. And she's kind of popular. So she was a, a, f- a rescue boat. And she would hang with the fishing fleet off of Norway mm. to provide ice breaking provisions, fuel and supplies or first aid for, for the fishing fleet. And then this guy bought her, converted her to luxury personal. And I took that from Falmouth, England to the Canaries to Falmouth, Antigua. Wow. Nice. And then flew home, 
And then there's a really kind of famous boat in the sailing sloop world called uh, Sorcerer 2, mm-hmm. which I'm sure you've seen here in Newport. Yeah. I helped take that boat from St. Thomas to Cologne. And that was the first plan to be on for two weeks. We got to Cologne and the captain's, you want to stay on for longer? And I said, well, the Pope Catholic, of course I do. I called in work. <laughs> I was like, I'm not coming back in for five more weeks. Right. So we went through the Panama Canal, which is an amazing experience. Mm. Even if you're not a sailor or in transit or work on a tank or a cruise ship, you should go fly to Panama and see this massive operation. Both canals now. That right. Too, because the second one's even bigger than the first one. And it's just amazing, the principles and the, how they operate and the facility itself. The It's not just a canal, but it's also an estuary. It's Gaton Lake where there's howler monkeys in the trees. There's pirates, literally bo- speedboats that you got to be careful of. There's huge ships and you're right next to them. Right. And like big ships. And then we made a bunch of more stops along the Pacific coast, ending in La Paz and Baja. Wow. And then I flew home and I didn't do anything for like two weeks. <laughs> it was like, shut the curtains and order delivery. Right. A friend of mine, and he was an earlier podcast guest. He talked about, he took his 46 foot catamaran and his family through the canal. Yeah. Uh, they went, well, they went both ways because they brought it back. He was a retired Navy officer. He's very smart. He went ahead and did a dry one run first on somebody else's boat. Smart. Just to see what it was all about. And they also hired, uh, I believe they hired, I don't know if they call them handlers or folks to a, a crew to be on his boat with him. Yep. So, sort of like a, a pilot. pilot. Yep. Yeah. They have pilots, <clears throat> depending on your size of your boat, you'll have a pilot come on board. Right. You know, they, you pay him or whatever cash and you have your documents corrected and they'll assist you. If you're a small boat, they usually put you in between the transom of a tanker and the door to keep the flow. Because when you come into Cologne or Panama City, there are, there's a huge queue of huge ships waiting and you've got to be able to go with a bunch of other boats or wait or the the big boys have priority. Obviously. Yeah. Right. That's what they're there for. And that's the they pay the big bills. So we were on a hundred foot sloop and this boat was really cool. It was actually a research vessel. I, I was, my girlfriend was the chef and the mate had ripped his Achilles ankle tendon on New Year's. So he was off the boat mm. and you know, I wasn't paid gig, but I got to spend two weeks, seven weeks on board this amazing boat. Wow. So it was, it was a Cookson 90 clean, Beautiful, comfortable, but not like varnish everywhere. You're not cleaning corners out with toothpick or <laughs> ear, you know, ear swabs or anything. Like there wasn't that fancy pants. Hmm. Um, but it was cool. It was a great boat for photos because they were doing water testing on board the boat and we would just go to all of these different spots. So and we'd beach and then we'd have a day off and we'd go hiking through the rainforest and Costa Rica. And I came from that one trip alone on sport on Sorcerer 2 for seven weeks. I think I came home with about 20,000 actuations on the cameras. Oh my God. Now is this, are you in digital at this point? Yeah. Yeah. So I made the switch. Terabytes of data. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I made the switch when I was working for Anna. He made the switch right before me. I was still working with film and then it's a, it's a purely business thing. It's economical. Right. The switch. And if you're still a pro and still using film, you've got a lot of connections to be able to produce them, to, to find the film, to afford the film, to produce them, to the cost of producing the printing. It's, it's expensive with the mm. film if you can find it. Um, so it's purely a business thing. If you're, if you're, sh- when you're shooting digital, I imagine if you shoot for a publication, they accept digital now, oh, only digital now. Right. Or do they, how do they prefer to have it the, the way the world's gone? Like if you were to shoot for cruising world or sailing world or something um, like that. 
Yeah, I mean, they were funny story. Funny you asked that. And my experience with Sorcerer 2, if the, if the photo is good enough, this some places might still take film, but mm. it's it's rare. I right. wouldn't bank on it. Um, they're, they're taking photos from iPhones now, <laughs> um, which is a different subject. <laughs> if you run another, another podcast um, about the stock photos and technology. But when I came home from that delivery, I reached out to Cruising World and said, hey, would you like to do a... Um, would you like a photo essay of this? Because I wouldn't classify myself as a writer. Mm. Um, and they said, sure. Or they said, let me think about it. A month went by. They said, fine, we'll, we'll give you the deal. And then, I mean, I, it took me a month to sort. They're like, give us your top 10 out of 20,000 actuations. So it took a month just to do that. Wow. And then I submitted them. Then a month later, the contract showed up. Then a month later, paycheck showed up for a grand. The crazy part about that is that they actually never published the story. Oh. In that process, they had a clearing out. There was a room the size of this shop yeah. of their library of film, CDs, DVDs, prints, digital files, CD-ROM, whatever, all the sources of media. And the Bonnier Corporation, that is the parent company for this, was like, clear it out. We got too much. Start over. And it was a oh, wholesale clear out. Yeah, they, they they just had too much. Regardless of what was current or in the works. Everything went. Oh, man. In the dumpster. <laughs> but you still had your copies, obviously. Yeah, I mean, I I have the rights. I have the, I retain all my photos since 2003 when I started. Right. But they paid me. They just never ran the story. Well, that's good. At least they paid you. <laughs> I remember. Magazines I, are tough. That's another podcast. Well, yeah. Well, I remember when I talked to Anna, there was a, a funny thing that came up. I asked him, you know, about that and. He didn't name names, but he did say at one point, someone will ask you for, you know, oh, send, send us some pictures and then you never hear back from him. And then you're in an airport somewhere in the world and you, you walk by a magazine and there's your picture. So you send him an invoice for a couple of grand that gets their attention. <laughs> <laughs> well said. Perfect. Yeah. 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 I, it must have happened to him once. And that, yeah. It happened to me a couple of times. People like free stuff. They do. And what cracks me up. I've noticed it's about competition in the area. I am super organized with this, the metadata and the filing. And I know who I send it to. I know I control everything in terms of, because it's a lot to deal with. And if you're not in control of it, you're digging yourself a hole. Right. And you send it out because you want it to get published. You want to get paid. You, it's a business, you know, you, you don't get callbacks, but then you see it and you're like, dude, come on, mm. let's don't make me like send a letter for my lawyer. Right. Just, do what's right. And, and, uh, yeah, that's happened a few times. I've, I've gotten on a horn or I've, I've talked to people in person and I was like, you know, you're three months past due. Right. Um, you had an agreement we had an, and it's like, Oh, um, sorry, I'll, I'll cut you a check later. And I was like, I'll sit here in your office all day. I got nowhere to go. Just it's happening. That's happened a few times. I noticed that it must be difficult in the digital landscape with social media to put something up that's yours and, and promote. But I suppose you put a watermark on it, right? And yep, put so, a little copyright stamp and say, hey, this is mine. I, I guess it's okay to share it as long as you give credit, but you shouldn't put it off, pass it off as your own, certainly. Right. Before, so Photoshop had it. It was a monster to, to deal with. The world of copywriting gave so much, or I should say Lightroom, which is produced by Adobe, mm -hmm. is an amazing tool. When it came out, it like, it saved so many 
photographers' butts with efficiency and organizing and copywriting because they created the tool for watermarking mm. and they created the tool for organizing. And most importantly, they created a, a, the, the biggest part of, I would say, half of the whole business is workflow. Right. So shooting and being the poster child is half of it. You know, you get talent or you have resources or you have working capital and you have a, an assistant or whatever, a marketing person. That's half of it. Mm. The other half of it is the business end of things, the, the, the workflow. What happens when you turn the camera off? You're, you're uploading the, the equipment you use, how you catalog it. Mm. It's a lot to front. But it's worthwhile on the back end of that process because then you can retrieve photos and get send it out quickly. And right. then with the media, they want it yesterday. Right. So if you do a shoot and then you wait like or it takes you a week to do it, people, have, they're gone. They're going to someone else. Right. So now, how much would you say now that your workflow goes to media in, in the, like a magazine sense versus just, I assume you would do stuff for a, a boat brochure or something like that, a shoot on it for a charter or brokerage or something. Yeah. I would say the, the media part I put about, if you want to quantify it, the media and magazines ha are more of a byproduct. I think a lot of people, because Instagram, for example, is so big and even bigger than Facebook for photo work, mm -hmm. people do all the time, but there's, and I'm not, I'm no whiz at, at I, I would love to hire someone to do the work for me in social media, but there's not a lot of return from the effort you put into no. it. And the Lightroom has made the workflow easier to do that. So you put a post up once a week and that gets a lot of traction. It's advertising, it's credibility, it's street credit, it's um, exposure and promotion. And I get, I get some sales from it. It's not huge, but, and with the magazines after the market crash in 2008, they don't hire anymore. It's more like I'll call them up and say, Hey, I'm shooting this regatta. We want to put me on assignment to shoot this cool boat. And they're like, um, no, if you happen, just go out, just send us your top 10. What they're doing is they're, they're getting the images. They don't have to pay you. And they're also giving images from other people with their iPhones. So uh, iPhones and smartphones are competing with, with pros who drop, you know, have a invested 10 grand in equipment and they're busting their butt out in the water and the conditions and the magazines will, will give, don't have to pay the people with the iPhone photos. Uh, so the pros, that's why I throttled back on the magazines. I, I, I haven't really put that much strain or effort to get published uh, because the amount of effort and I mean, I talked to some, some magazine editors, they don't even answer the phone anymore huh. because it's all emails right? and it's all getting people to submit them for, you know, not having to pay photographer's rates when they can get it for free from Joe Schmo. Right. They take a hit by doing that because they don't get the quality, but they're not that worried about it. Right. They're not going to blow it up to a 40 by 90 print on their wall. They're mm. just, they only need it for an eight by 10. Which is fine for a you know iPhone eleven. That's my phone. My phone's an iPhone eleven, and I've sold photos to magazines from it. Yeah, I don't know what mine is. I think it's a twelve. I'm not, I don't get the latest phone. No, I actually yet. on that point on photography, I've never bought the newest equipment ever in my whole career. I've saved thousands of dollars per year to buying the not the greatest equipment, and. It's worked out fine. Are you brand loyal to a specific brand? Yep. Oh, yeah. I'm definitely a Canon man. Mm -hmm. um, 
So when I was working for Honor, he was all canon. Yep. There's another gentleman who I like to credit my work to is a guy named Clint Clemens. Hmm. And Clint is a famous car photographer um, back in the 80s and 90s. Clint and Honor know each other. Clint's here in Newport or was for a while. He was basically based in Boston. So after I worked for Anna, I took a few bunch of years off to do my own thing. And then I ran into Clint and it was kind of a cool side story of how we met and how I started working for him. But I was his right hand man. And that I learned a lot from him because he, I mean, he gets, he's a Canon Explorer light. There's this group on his one too. I think there's a hundred photographers in the world. Yeah, I think in, he won it a couple of years ago or got awarded it or there was a contest. It was, he was up against somebody else. Yeah, that was a kind of a cool duo they did. But Anna was a, a Canon Explorer light long before that. Oh, okay. And I, I think if I get this right, you have to you have to get invited to be one. You can't just apply. And Clint invited Anna, so Clint was kind of like a few years up in kind of a caliber of other photography. So I got to work for Clint right for a while as a an assistant in office. Clint was big in the corporate cars and he has accounts for like BMW and Audi and Porsche and Volvo. And I started working for him as he was getting out of the business. Mm -hmm. And then I was working for him on a, like a side hustle, side jobs. Uh, he, Clint said, you know, jump. I said, how high? <laughs> <laughs> so, and then I stopped working for Clint in 2015 to go back on my own. Did I don't want to jump around too much. Cause I know you'd like to do things chronologically, <laughs> whatever your, your, your show. There was, um, I have a memory and I could be wrong. And it was, I want to say it was when Nim Marsh was the editor at, at Points East. Mm -hmm. You did a, a feature piece, both written and photography of a, I don't know, it was a trip or a delivery you did. And I want to say it was like Inland Waterways. Am I remembering that correctly? Um, it was a whole story about the, it was a story about the boat itself. It was your journey. And I'm, I'm, I don't know why I'm picturing it in points East, but. So I've done a lot of work with points East. They're a great company to work for. And I'll, on a side note, they, they don't have the biggest budget, but they communicate mm -hmm. and they pay. Oh, right. Like I'll get a check next week. Right. And I love working for them because they're, they answer the phone yeah. and they talk and they communicate and they're great to work with. Um, yeah. They have a few regulars, but then I see a lot of what I would consider pretty good quality user submitted uh, content. Yeah. I, I love the magazine. What I love about them is they don't fall into the, the slop of major magazines where it's just loaded with ads. It's mm. the same article over and over. It's the same feature story of the new production boat. It, mm. They've been more creative about it and they, they're more, they're more, it's more interesting to read right. basically. Yeah. So I think what you're getting at is a boat called the white whale. Okay. And it was a 1936, 34 foot Hall Mulford one-off, which was my family's boat, my stepdad's boat. Okay. So that boat. was the connection. Yeah. yeah. And my stepdad, writes casually and um, his name is Paul Jocelyn. Um, we had, I had a great time growing up on that boat. The story was about Hamburg Cove up the Connecticut river in Essex. Okay. So yeah, I'm remembering the inland part. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is one of the best hurricane holes and venues for shallow draft boats. <laughs> key, key navigational tip there. Shallow draft boats. Let me reinforce this though. And it's, it's a fantastic story. Did uh, we kiss the mud a few times? Not on this boat. No. Other boats can't do it. Right. The, this, this one-off boat, I think had a two foot draft, two and a half foot draft. So oh, wow. it wasn't, wasn't that bad. And what's cool about that 
is the the cove itself is you've got like first come first serve $25 per night rental mooring rentals mm. um scene the wildlife you got eagles great great blue herons all these birds and swans and this kind of like this nook this kind of like estuary small anchorage with beautiful scenic views. And then you go up the Connecticut river mm. and even further, there's this offshoot of a place called Selden Creek and Selden Creek is a limestone quarry and it's about six miles long, maybe a little more. And it's about 30 feet wide, 40 feet wide and about five feet deep. Wow. So it's amazing for wildlife, kayaking, rowing, shallow draft boats, dinghies. And what this one guy did, I, th- I have a photo of it, is he, I don't know if it was from the quarry days or someone after that, he put in these big pad eyes into the rock and you could just put fenders on your starboard side and tie up to this and just watch the world go by. Right. So it drops, so obviously it drops right off. It's a clean yeah, cut, from, a clean the, cut. From, from the quarry rocks. So yeah, Selden Creek, me. Selden Creek and Hamburg Co. up the Connecticut River is a beautiful venue. Mm. Yeah, I, re- I remember reading the story and I think I'm, I talked to Nim at the time because I think he was the editor. And uh, Yep, Nim Marsh. I don't know. Great guy to work with. Yeah, yeah. yeah he was, if, you, if you want on this, it's not going to... I have the photo of the boat for our conversation. All right. And here it is tied to the rock. Yeah. That's the boat I remember. Yeah. yeah. This was a uh, one off from, it was a Hall Mulford from Ferriton, New Jersey. This was my stepfather's dad's boat. Nice lines. Gorgeous boat. Yeah. Boat was called the white whale. So my, my stepdad grew up on it. Mm. Then my stepdad went off to college in the war and then him and his buddy found it again in a barn find, basically <laughs> sitting kind of dilapidating in a yard, bought yeah. it, bought it for the guy from a buck and restored it. Oh my God. Yeah. That's so lucky. The, and it's, she's wood, right? So yeah. lucky the hole was in good shape oh, and canvas deck. Oh boy. <laughs> cool. But yeah, lots of, we spent lots of summers on block, like anchoring off Payne's dock and, yeah. um, sleeps six, com- five comfortably. Mm. Yeah, it's cool when you could do that. And the gear shifter, there's these big brass knobs and uh, the throttles were these kind of like brass needles that you kind of like had to push with your thumb hard. It was oh, wow. like cool, rugged, no bow thrusters, no fancy band stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Very great, bro. That's sweet. Yeah. There's a, a handful of photos that I guess relate to that's not going to help the viewers. I guess no, so no. much. <laughs> It'll help us after. Or the listeners. <laughs> right, the, the listeners, not the viewers. Yeah. You talked about like, you kind of drifted away from the magazines a bit. What opportunities do you see out there for, for, for professional photographers? Like, um, it's tough because that I was, you have to have a 101% commitment to it. I, when I started off, I was doing product photography. I did a few weddings. I did everything I could. And I got to the point where I was so scattered. Mm. I was like, this is ridiculous. Like, I'm just going to filter this stuff out and give 101% to the, the nautical photography. Mm. And that was one of the best decisions I ever made second to making the decision that I wanted to be a nautical photographer. Right. Because when you start off, you're hunting all the time, you're promoting, you're working, you're call, cold calling, you're emailing. And when I decided to go all in, I didn't have to hunt as much. Mm. More calls came to me, which was just right gravy. For the other photographers that are want to get into it, you need the stock photos. Right. 
when I started working with Anna, I'll never forget this. And I thank him for that. Like, you've got to have the stock. Right. So you can't have a thousand photos in your library and start still phone. You have to have hundreds of thousands of photos and it can't all be the same thing. Mm. It's, it's got to have variety. I was always hesitant about working with stock agencies because of the market crash, the industry decline, the boost in software and the boost in technology. It's a commodity now. It's worth peanuts. Right. And the client, you know, the client pays for it and they give you a royalty, but you're the photographer. You're not even getting credited anymore. It's like, oh it's, 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 it's out there. It's free. It's loose. So I never committed to that. Sure. I could have made more money and I could have made it easier, but it wouldn't be that much. Right. And over the years, it just, you could see a decline. Yeah. So I decided then that I was going to do everything through me with a hundred percent profit. Right. And it paid because when you wake up in the morning and you get an order for stock photos and you made three grand in a day by 9am. That's a good day. <laughs> yeah. Go back to bed Yeah, right. and, and go, go, go fishing or something for the day. It doesn't happen often, but uh, you got to, yeah, you got to submit, you got to reach out, you got to be aggressive with the the magazines and the companies. I also didn't do it because I didn't fully understand the legalities of it mm. and the paperwork and the, I was like, you know what? It's, it's a lot of admin work and not a lot of profit. I'm going to pause on selling. I'm going to keep building. I'm going to keep shooting. I'm going to keep traveling, you know, based on traveling. I think 2014 was a big year. I was in... 24 airports in three months. Wow. So I had this pretty cool deal lined up. I was working in Antigua and it was at a, at a club running the selling program, but it was a two weeks on two weeks off program. So the two weeks off, they kicked me off the club so they could use the, the villa, my villa as a place for their, their customers or the members, I should say. And my quasi uncle was a first officer for American Airlines. So he gave me the buddy pass. <laughs> it cost me 80 bucks to go from Antigua to Hawaii. Holy cow. And I went from, if I can remember this correctly, mostly on standby with the big, air, the big flights, but I went from Newport to Antigua, Antigua for two weeks, then Hawaii for 12 days, back to Newport for a couple of days, Antigua for two weeks, then Tortola, Virgin Gorda, Anagata for two weeks back to Antigua for two weeks, then Dominica for 12 days, which is that place rocks. That mm. place is so cool. Back to Antigua for two weeks. And the last day I worked at Mill Reef was the first start, the first day of the St. Bart's bucket. All right. So I said goodbye to, to Antigua, went to St. Bart's for a week. And that was epic in That's, terms of like the stock, the photos, the experiences. Yeah. Not to mention, I mean, the price point. Yeah. <laughs> I think I spent, I think I owed my, my uncle, my uncle friend about, I think it was like a thousand, no, like under a thousand dollars for all yeah. those flights. Aha. Uh -huh. That and, brings me to one of my questions. I, uh, I picked up a tidbit off your website and I did a double take. <laughs> what was that? You're a glider pilot. Uh, I'm learning. Oh yeah. It is. It's sailing at 5,000 feet. It is gorgeous. It's mm -hmm. silent. There's no engine. There's no fuel. It's relatively inexpensive mm. to fly. Um, you just need to get a tow up. Yeah. You can either get towed up with, or you can get launched up. Mm. So there's some companies and yards that have a, basically a, a fishing real spool, whatever one you want to use. And it launches you from the ground. You don't need a tow plane. Oh, wow. That's bigger in Europe. Yeah. More of the U.S. has um, tow planes. Right. So my first, so my grandfather was like, you have to go sailing, gliding. Mm. Growing, I was traveling all much. I didn't have a lot of spare cash to do it. 
And my first opportunity to do that was when I went to Hawaii in 2014 and I was flying glider over the North shore of Hawaii. Oh, wow. For the first experience. <laughs> and we got about 30 minutes of flight time. That's the hard sell. Yeah. And there's nothing better than that. After everything that is just hard. It's a hard act to follow. Yeah. Right. And then, um, I was hooked. It's amazing. Mm. I was reading a story. Actually, I think I watched a video. There's a place in Australia and when the things align the right way, it's like this ridge and you can go up and down it all day long and stay in the air because of the way this, these two weather systems converge yep. and it's like the Mount Everest of sailplaning. You just, once you get up there and over it, you're just back and forth constantly. Yeah, I mean, it, pe- people do transcontinentals and gliders. Really? Because they, they map out the thermals and they follow the ridge lines of the mountains and they just, uh, wow. it's, if you're good at it, you can stay up there all day. Yeah. So. Yeah. There's a place we stayed uh, up in New Hampshire at the, uh, called the Franconia Inn yep. and there's a little airstrip there. It's just grass, but it's mainly gliders. There's a, there's a couple of, uh, I, I suppose you could fly in, um, if you can land on grass, you could fly in, in a, in a small plane. But they take people up in these gliders and you go around the Cannon Mountain, Lafayette Peak, and, and they just, they ride those ridges constantly. It's glider flying is yeah. just, it's sailing at five. Th- and what's great about the coincidental irony of it is that on sails, you have a yarn telltale for lift and headers. Mm. On your cockpit window, you have a piece of yarn taped to your cockpit window on the outside to tell whether you're going to turn left or right, just like a header or lift on oh, a boat. Wow. Uh, it's literally a, a piece of yarn that tells oh, I you. Thought, I've seen videos and I thought that was to indicate a stall coming or something. That's directional. It's directional. Just like a header or lift. Oh, okay. So yeah. So it flows. So it tells you time to time to pull to port or to starboard. Exactly. Wow. Um, so that's, this was my grandfather. He was, he did a lot of flying mm. and then he got me hooked with my first lessons and I'm, you know what a Mooney is? Oh yeah. Yeah. So, Get that reverse camber tail. Exactly. Yeah. They were like the very, not super supercharged or super powered, but very aerobatic and nimble. Right. And in 2000, 2010, I think it was 2008, nine, I forget. My grandfather and his partner broke two FAA records in one shot. Oh, really? The, the transcontinental on the Portland of Portland and the supercharged Mooney. Oh, wow. So, um, there's a bit of like flying is just a great way to see the worlds. It's great for logistics. It's, you know, before drones and, you know, there was a, it was a cheaper way to see the world and mm. photograph boats from the air yeah. with, with high wing planes. Cause you could shoot out the window or, and you can, you can, your air sk- airspeed could be, you know, 60 knots and you're doing fine. But right. once you go to helicopter then you're charging yeah. <laughs> aviation price goes way up. <laughs> yeah. I, I have a friend who has a small plane, uh, I think it's a Piper or Archer two or something. Mm-hmm. And he's, he's flown me out to Martha's Vineyard a couple of times so I could cut the grass at my dad's house. And if, if I were to drive it's, well, let me put it this way. It's three hours door to door yep. from Newport to that house. No matter how I cut it up, I gotta, I have to drive to the, uh, the steamship authority, park there, take the bus, get on the ferry. And then when I get to Woods Hole, I mean, uh, Vineyard Haven, I gotta walk up the hill. So it's three hours. He flew me there. We were there in 15 minutes. It was insane. My favorite experience. And I said, I want to travel like this every time. I wish (laughs) I had the foresight for knowledge, the training and money savings to have a helicopter at a younger age because I, I mean, I fly with a bird's eye view helicopter here a lot for the photo work and, um, he's a great pilot, great way to see the world. But a couple of years, no, 
five years ago, he started a charter service mm. and I was in a jam. I screwed up the, uh, scheduling dates and I was shooting for U.S. sailing at Tom's River, New Jersey, Youth Champs. Mm-hmm. And I had to be back here uh, for a meeting for JFest Regatta. And it was with out traffic from Tom's River, New Jersey, back to Newport was like five hours. Ugh. So I was like, screw it. I called up Bird's Eye Helicopter. He flew from Newport to, there was a small regional airport at Tom's River, about a mile from the Yacht Club. Yeah. We loaded up the chief, flew in, loaded the chopper, and we flew back and it was an hour and a half. Oh, so you planned ahead and did a round trip with him. Well, he flew yeah. in empty and they yeah. picked me up and then he dropped me off here in Newport and I made it to the meeting. Oh God. <laughs> but then you had, did you leave your car or truck at? No, I, uh, I actually drove with a friend who oh, was going okay. down there by car. So, so he got to drive five hours back. <laughs> yeah. I owed him a few beers after that. <laughs> I, I've only ever flown in a helicopter once and it was the mother of all helicopters. It was like a Chinook. It might be another, I don't know if there are other dual rotor helicopters out there, but it was set up for passengers. Yep. And um, my wife had done it as a surprise. It was um, during a Christmas. There's this little port in Cornwall called Mausel, mm-hmm. spelt like mouse hole. And they they do a thing at night. They do these lights and stuff. So the, the trip was really, they did a lot of the coast, but it was at night and you could see it. I was like, this is awesome. <laughs> Helicopters big, big are- Big helicopter. Yeah. I've flown, I, I got to able to- um, Get media credits to fly in a Blackhawk, a UH-60 Blackhawk helicopter, and a few passenger airplanes during the um, the Quonset Air Show. All oh, right, kind of BS my way through the the media credentials, mm. and they're like, "We don't really care. Just, I mean, we want your photos. You know, give us your hundred best photos. We'll get you up on the chopper." Right, and it was a really cool experience to sit in a. They did some formation flying with the with the Blackhawks, yeah, and um, some touchdowns. And I remember sitting in the both door, both cargo bay doors are wide open. The seats are ninety degree like church pews of webbing, and you are strapped tight, like you can't even mm. budge. And I, when they weren't looking, I kind of loosened a little bit because I needed to like <laughs> turn my body to look through the camera. That was a I love helicopters. I, you know, there's. They have their place that they, they have advantages over drones. Um, it took me a while to get a drone. My first drone, I bought my first drone last September. I remember, uh, was it the first, I want to say it was the first Volvo Ocean Race stopover. They, they had that import racing. This was 2015. I can't remember that. I have to look it up. But okay. I, I remember going there and walking out on the field and, and they were doing the import. It was like, those things are so fast. They're going like between here and Jamestown and the hell they had at least two helicopters. I think one was sort of stationary off and the other one, they were part of the event and they were filming it and they were right down on the water and they'd like swoop down, skim across the water, like do this weird turn, you know, almost like a, a hammerhead type turn yep. and come back. And I even remember listening to the commentators because they had it coming out the speaker. It's like, well, they're having trouble at that that mark, and and what? And I'm and I'm thinking to myself, I know why they're having trouble. It's because that rotor wash. <laughs> and then, it's sure enough, I think either later in the next heat of races or just later that day, the helicopters just kind of stood back, and the guy was a real cowboy. I mean, he was he they was are. flying the thing like a fighter jet. They are there. I've flown with a few helicopter pilots. One life lesson I learned is if you call an agency to, to, I have a, my mom's cousin is an aerial photographer out of Worcester, Mass. And one life lesson I learned from him is if you get, if you go up on a chopper with a company, 
don't go with the kid. Don't they, they'll, <laughs> what they'll do is they'll put you with someone who's just earned their you know pilots right. their pilot's license to fly because it's cheaper and easier. And you say at like. I don't want them. I want, I want your old senior guy who can do this shit in his sleep. I want to see some gray hairs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I, I flew with one guy. I had so much fun with him because he was a Huey Vietnam veteran and his call sign was snake shit. <laughs> Cause he'd fly lower than snake shit in his, in his Huey helicopter. And he could put that thing anywhere he wanted. Right. Um, but I love going up with Jed Codman with bird's eye view. Yeah. He's a, uh, it's great. Definitely. If you can, if you get the chance, go up for a, a tour, it is worth every penny of it. You can do like, you know, the small packages to buzz around. Yeah. We had friends visit from England a couple of summers ago and, and they, I don't know which one they did, but it was with bird's eye view and, and they went up and they did one of the tours. He brought back, <laughs> brought back pictures on his iPhone mm-hmm. that he took out the, out the, the window, but it was, they were, they loved it. They had a blast. Yeah. I, like I said, if I had the money, I'd go up every weekend mm. because just the, the control you have and the variety you have, mm. um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a special thing and drones have their place, but people wondered why I, I was, I waited for so long to get a drone because it's the experience. It's, mm. it's being a photographer. You can sit in an office downtown Newport and operate your drone for a regatta and not even see it, like not right. even be a part of it. There's also, you know, limitations of, you know, range of drones, right. heights, FAA rules. Like when I shoot the Bermuda race start, there's no drones allowed because they're right. a hazard to drone to the helicopters. Right. You, yeah. you know, your hat falls out the side of the window and gets caught in the tail rotor. Yeah. Bad news. I think the number one, thing about photography and having the angles and the photos is access. Right. So helicopters give you that access. There's no place you can't go. There's some places you don't want to be for long. Like you don't want to irk the sailors. Right. So, you know, with setting up your shot, planning out what your approach is, and then getting that cool angle, snap, 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 and get out of there. Right. Because you don't want to piss them off with your rotor wash. Mm. You don't want to distract them. And do, do the charter, the availability get scarce when like a big event comes in town? In other words, if you wanted to shoot the ocean race when they arrive or something, or I don't think they're doing any import racing this time. Uh, I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but if you were to, all of a sudden everything gets booked up. Oh yeah. I'm yeah. sure. I'm sure Jeff Cobb and bird's eyes booked already. Yeah. Does he have two helicopters? Last time I went up with him, he had two. Yeah. Um, I went up for a, I think it was 19, 2019 Safe Harbor Regatta mm. or Newport Bucket Regatta right. or the Shipyard Cup. That's changed a few times. <laughs> um, Settle on a name, people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I went up with him. and uh, you, There was an interesting quote on your website. I don't know if you wrote it, or, but it's, it's well written. It says... And I quote, in today's saturated industry and niche market, Matthew believes that relentless creativity, customer service, and continued education are the three imperative tenets for long-term success. I know that that pretty much hit the nail on the head there. Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah. Self-written. There's a famous saying uh, in photography is you're only as good as your last shot. Mm-hmm. So that, I think a combination of that and having a lot of competition mm. is great for you 
Like people get a little intimidated by competition, but I thrive on it because it makes you want to do better. Right. You're, you're forced to do better. And I've done it. I mean, I started, you know, I was a broke photographer and I've made mistakes. I've, I've cleaned them up mm. in terms of business, you know, failing to deliver photos or got distracted. It's, you know, when you're a one man band, you do, you have a lot of things you have to do. You have to do shooting, delivery, uh, socializing, bills and taxes and advertising, you get lost. Yeah. So in a tight knit community, nautical photography is, is, a, is a double niche market, right? Because sailing is high end and associated with money and prestige and wealthy owners. So there's a bit of pressure from that. And then photography itself is niche hmm. market. So it's not like I'm a businessman selling bread. Right. It's like, it's your equipment's specific, your locations are specific, your clients are specific. And I think really bending over backwards to meet deadlines and to answer phone calls and to get back to people says a lot about your business ethics. Right. I think there's a lot of people that in this industry, in this town or in other industries that just don't blow you off. Don't answer. Don't right. they, Hey, we love your photos. Can you send us samples? And then you don't hear back from them. Mm. I have, I have a two, two communication rule. If I don't hear back from you and two, I'm on to something else right. because, you know, I a waste of your time. It is. That's, yeah, a waste you know, I give them two, I give them a two rule because a two effort rule or two points of contact rule, because if I don't hear back from you in the one one, maybe you were busy, maybe mm -hmm. you were in the hospital, whatever it is. Second time I don't hear back from you. I mean, it's on you like right. balls in your court. You're, you're clearly not, you're clearly not interested in doing business with me. When we were getting set up, just uh, when you walk through the door, I was telling you about this other podcast I listened to. A guy does a lot of surf, skate, snowboard stuff. And he had this uh, a photographer on who focuses on snowboarding and surf. And uh, the host of the podcast said a really good quote. He said, they were talking about how long it's taken this guy to build his career, mm -hmm. you know, and, and it's just, you just keep doing it. You just keep building it. And the host said, yeah, creative pursuits are a really long game. <laughs> and I thought like that nails it, you know, cause we, we've been talking mostly about the business aspect and, and the commercial and end of your work, but there's a whole creative component to it. Sure. So, and, th and I think that's what they were getting at. They're talking about this long game of, you know, it, it, cause it really is creativity. And just like you, this photographer, I think is based in LA. Mm -hmm. He, he, he takes pride in, in thought and how he lays it out and how he approaches it. And so he's sending it to different types of publications, but same idea, you know, it, Hey, there's a creative element to this that you're not thinking about. I'll tell you a cool little anecdote to the, based off of that, my experience that solidified my approach, my business ethics and my sort of my operations. So I was, uh, in 2008, no, sorry, 2000. Yeah, 2008, the Wickford Arts Festival, I had a booth set up. Oh, yeah. And a nice 10 by 10 on the side of the water on downtown Wickford. It's a great show. It's one of the best in New England. And it was kind of metaphorically and literally blended together. And it, I it, I had this aha moment. And to the left of me was this kind of innocent, quiet lady knitting. She had a, three paintings in her booth and they were gorgeous. I mean, works of art, beautiful mm. things, underpriced. She had no engagement with the customers, didn't say, you know, hi, no mm. questions, nothing. And I was like, 
something doesn't seem right, you know? And then to my right was this guy, total greasy salesman. He's like, Hey, you nice shoes, you know, come over, buy four, get the fifth three. <laughs> and you know, he, you could see his work and it was just like stuff he printed off his like home office on his HP printer. It right. wasn't quality stuff. And at, at that moment I was like, got to blend the two. You got to be the artist mm. and you got to be the salesperson. You got to right. be social and you got to be, because if one, you're one, you have these beautiful works up, but you're not going to sell anything. You're not going to keep your lights on. Mm. And um, if you're the grease ball, then no one's going to want to deal with you. Yeah. I remember my college roommate is very business minded. He's runs a very successful business in Boston. Mm. And in the late nineties, I was dating an artist and she had an opening and this other artist came to the opening. And for some reason, Jim got talking to him and he was thoroughly impressed because what this artist did was he had these beautiful commissioned pieces that he would do for people. Mm. But he, like you, going back to our beginning of our conversation, he retained the rights. So he sold the original work signed to this family. It's hanging in their house somewhere in Newport. But he retained the rights to the image. He then did the prints. Yep. And the prints, uh, I'm not going to name names, but they are ubiquitous almost. This one painting in particular, uh, looking across a porch out onto the harbor, it's, it's everywhere. That's, that's his source of revenue. That's his income. I mean, he made, he made money once from the initial commission work. Yep. But he is subsequently has cash flow from retaining the rights. I, I do enjoy the sort of creative part of, I wouldn't say marketing, but just this, the creative way of, selling photos, mm. um, reaching out to people, you know, um, that the art, the art show landed a huge commission, which was a nice feather in the cap in the career. There's a company down in New York, an investment company called Oppenheimer and company. And they now own 140 pieces of my work. Mm. Um, and the smallest one is 40 by 60. Wow. And they've 2000, that was so 2008, ironically from the market crash, 2008 was my best year um, from that commission. I mean, I was a starving artist working out of my apartment and the owner of this company. I never forget this. I did this. I had a really bad weekend or week. I almost cut off my right thumb with a serrated bread knife and I had to get stitches and and I was setting up for the show and I had a bad day and I was cutting a bread knife and I just had this sponge on it and I cut it. I was like, just... I just sat the show. I had bandages. I went to the hospital and <laughs> I'm sitting there with like my hand behind my back, holding onto the, the tent because it was windy and the tent wasn't really high quality. You begin to rethink things. <laughs> <laughs> yes. A life, life lesson learned hard. And actually that was a great show. I sold out that show. Mm. Some lawyer came in and bought all these mini pieces and small prints because you can't, it's only 10 by 10. You can't mm-hmm. put big things. And then two weeks later, I got an email. I'm like, mind you, I'm still working out of my apartment on Harrison Avenue in, in Fifth Ward. I get this email and the, it, I'll never forget this. It said, would you and your gallery like to receive a large order for 300 Madison Avenue, New York? Yes, I, we will. <laughs> I fell out of my chair. Wow. Really cool experience. In terms of the the sale, the process of mm. ordering them, the owner of the company uh, was in town and I was out shooting stock photos at First Beach, just kind of like waist deep, just messing around on mm. a Saturday or whatever. And I get the call and it's 212 Eric of New, uh, uh, New, New York. York. I was like, better answer it. It's him. He's like, hey, I'm in town. Uh, I'd love to do this if you're available. I was like, sure, no problem. What's your timing? And he's like, uh, I'll be there in two hours. I literally was in my wetsuit and I dr- jumped into my car hauled the mail up Memorial Avenue in my wetsuit and like made my apartment as office like as possible and set up these um, contact sheets right. for him to circle. And then two days later, a FedEx envelope with a 
check for $17,000 showed up and I was like, <laughs> that's helpful. That's, <laughs> that's it. So, and then the installation was amazing in New York and you needed a COI to get into the building. I didn't know what a COI was, the certificate of insurance. Right. You can't bring a pencil in the back, the cargo door without a COI. I didn't have one. So we had to deliver this. When a company in New York wants to decorate their entire building or multiple floors, it's a, it's a commission. So, you know, I was hustling. I, like I said before in this podcast, I did everything that I could in the industry to support the photography business. And when mm. when you don't have to hunt to to keep your lights on and that stuff comes to you, it's, it's one of the greatest days. You know, I paid the, the, the cost to produce everything. I crammed everything of the whole order into the back of my Volvo station wagon. And like I said, you couldn't fit a grain of rice in there right. to get. And I think one of the coolest things that, I mean, I was stoked for this whole commission, but when I was driving down to New York with the Volvo wagon, the Hudson is kind of like the road on the Hudson has a little bend in it. And as you drive south on the Hudson and you get to the bend, you start to see the skyline mm. of the, all these tall built like the skyscrapers. And right then looking at the skyline and looking in the rear view mirror of this, all of these prints packaged and wrapped and Peter Gabriel's big time song came on. Oh yeah. And I was, I was so stoked and he's playing in Boston later this year. Really? I'm totally so. getting tickets <laughs> <laughs> and then got there and we had a hiccup because I didn't have a COI mm. and basically I paid the maintenance guy 40 bucks in cash to take $10,000 worth of art on a dolly to the 22nd floor of this building oh, man. and pray that it didn't get scratched or broken or crunched. And then I went in as a lunch guest of the secretary. I did not stop for about six hours straight wow. yeah. to get all these pieces hung. And I, I'm, I'm in the hallway, hanging the last piece, putting a level on it, checking me. And the owner comes around, the guy who commissioned it, comes around the corner with his business entourage. And he's like, oh, this is fantastic. I'm sweating. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm a mess. I haven't, I haven't eaten. I haven't gone to the bathroom in like three hours. Right. And um, had a balance in an envelope. And I was doing, I left and I was doing cartwheels down 300 Madison Avenue awesome. from that and drove home like a... Happy as a pig, and you wouldn't know what. So. And I notice you've upgraded now from the, the old Volvo to a suburban. So yeah, I had a few. So you can get some rice in there. <laughs> <laughs> more more bags of rice. Yeah, I love the suburban. It's a great vehicle. Capability, reliability, safety, cargo. I just did a um, between Christmas and New Year's. I did a six day, probably close to six hundred miles mm. all throughout Cape Cod. Oh yeah. And oh, I saw. Yeah, I saw your pictures on social media. Thanks. Yeah, it was put up some, I've been to the Cape, but I've never been to P town and I've never really photographed it. I was, I went years ago when I was a kid for right. family outings or just to, you know, go for a day trip to the beach, but like to come back there and hit everything, mm. every lighthouse, every beach, every shop, like, it, and it was no one there. It was fantastic. Right. No one, no one cares where you park your big suburban. No one, it was a little tough to find lodging. I mean, yeah. it was, I, it came close to me sleeping in the suburban one night, but that's what suburban is Because it's for. off season. Yeah. yeah. Everything was closed. I got lucky. There was one place open that was, you know, it had a hot tub because I had just done a six hour trek in soft sand at night out to Race Point Lighthouse. Oh God. And the, it, my, I came back after schlepping 20 pounds of camera gear my legs, everything but my below my waist was burning. Right. So, um, but Cape Cod is fantastic. Yeah. And I, beautiful place. I love 
legitimately love lighthouses. They are the combination of my two passions of sailing, mariner, being a mariner, and light. Right. So that uh, you were you're asking in the the preamps about some experiences. Um, I got the really cool opportunity to spend 48 hours in Sakana Lighthouse. Oh wow. Um, that was, that was August of 19th. That's out there too. That's isolated. It is. They have no running water, no electricity. And it, it took a good convincing. I had to do some preparation, sign some waivers, contact the Coast Guard to let them know I was out there and doing lighting. But the main reason I did that was if you go online right now, based on we were talking about stock photos and the abundance of them. If you go online right now and look up Sakana Lighthouse, there's 9,000 photos of iPhone take photos taking it from half a mile away right. at noon. That's not the point of a lighthouse. No. So I wanted to get on the lighthouse. I wanted to shoot at night and I wanted to shoot a long exposure with a special lens. Mm. And, you know, people who are listening to this can't see it, but I have a ear to ear grin just talking about that experience because oh, it was yeah. really cool. Yeah. Who owns the Rose Island? I mean, excuse me. Who owns the Sakana Lighthouse? It's, um, it- um, it's a, collaboration of the Friends of Lighthouse Association. Okay. So there's a lighthouse keeper in conjunction with the Coast Guard. I was going to say, it's still a navigable uh, yeah. use. So it's a it's a solar-powered operated light mm. that the solar power charges a battery that sits in the lower section of it. And uh, I have, I took a few photos of the behind the scenes set up in this little lower level room of the lighthouse where I stayed for t- two nights. And there's this white box the size of a cooler that says USCG on it. Mm. I was running low on fuel on my generator. I was like, hmm, I wonder if I could tap into the battery of the ghost cart. <laughs> no, I didn't do that, though. Yeah. All of a sudden, the light goes out. <laughs> Boats crash on the beach. Yeah. Lighthouse Oops. goes out because of photographer's recharging needs. <laughs> Priorities. Priorities, yeah. yeah. Um, but very cool experience. Cool. I had a 360 view of three different fireworks shows going off at the same time in the same night. Oh, wow. Wow. So Portsmouth, Rhode Island, Westport, Mass. And I could see Martha's Vineyard had a fireworks show. Wow. I couldn't pull photos for that because yeah. it's lighthouses and or fireworks. But just to be 65 feet above the water yeah. by yourself at a steel can to see these fireworks. How did off. you get in and out of there? Was there a little shuttle service? or uh, No, it was a process. And that was what made it so hard. It's basically a, a lighthouse and bolted onto a concrete base that sits on a small rock outcrop. There's no docks. It can be rough seas. You can't swim. You can't kayak. You can't tie up your fiberglass boat to it. I called three helicopter services to see if they would drop me off on it. Wouldn't do it. The liability, regardless of liability, there's no place to land. Right. It's a small rock. I loaded up all my gear into a workboat and the workboat had these big tires and rubber rumbers. And what we did is we took two passes and I on the workboat, had all my gear strapped onto me, and he drove the boat up into the rock for a minute, jumped off. He pulled back so he wouldn't damage the boat from the waves. Mm. And then he'd come back, I'd jump on, he'd pull back, and then I'd load up the gear again. And then he'd go back to the rock. I'd jump off, and I'm sitting there with all my gear on the rock. And he's like, I'll see you in a couple of days. <laughs> and hope the weather's good. <laughs> we got luck in the weather. Yeah. Um, that night, Friday night, there was a storm and it kind of spooked me because I didn't plan for a storm. I'm sitting in a steel can and I'm like, uh-huh. am I going to get zapped? Like, right. you can see lightning bolts over like southeastern Connecticut heading this way. And by the time it got here, it dissipated or went south. So a lighthouse, which was pretty cool. Yeah. A lot of times those miss us. Yeah. Yeah. We got lucky. Yeah. So. Wow. 
but epic photos came from it. Definitely portfolio work nice. and just the experience. So sure. Was that recent? Was that after the Cape Cod trip or before? Before. That was yeah. August of 19. So I had actually gone out there. My former boss, Clint Clemens, was a friend with a lighthouse keeper. And he hooked me up and said, do you want to go out for a tour? And we just went up close mm. and it was a calm day and walk around. I was like, I want to spend a week out here. Yeah. And he's like, out of your mind? <laughs> I can't do that. <laughs> I was like, all right, I'll let, I, I'll let a few years go by. A few years go f- go by. And then I kept thinking about it. And I was like, I want to do this. Yeah. How about a weekend? Right. I'll sign up, I'll make a waiver, I'll contact the Coast Guard, let them know. So like mariners or locals don't think that the light's broken or anything like that. Mm. So did it. And it was sweet. Total highlight. Nice. Wow. Well, we covered a lot here. There's more if you want. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just based on the, yeah, yeah. the bullets. And I've been busting my butt for the past, tw- this is the year 20. Mm. And, um, I had a gallery in, <coughs> excuse me, I had a gallery in 2012 on spring street, small 400 square foot gallery. I closed it cause I got the job offer in Antigua. Mm. I knew I wasn't going to make any money or much money in the winter. So I wrapped it up and I told when I closed it, I told myself I'm going to, um, open it up again. I want plus or minus 2000 square feet on one of the main drags because I have, after 20 years of shooting, I have millions of photos in the stock. Oh, I bet. So I need the space. I love selling the big pieces. Mm. They're just magical, very involving. And galleries are still relevant to photographers these days. Yeah. yeah. They're yeah. tough. They're kind of like, I would put galleries in the same category as the magazines we talked about earlier. They are tough. They, you know, years ago, it would be a, a 70, 30, you know, commission. Mm favor of the artists. Now it's like 50, 50, right. 60, 40 favor of the, the gallery. And you're like, let's do it myself. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's, right. It's more fun. So my big goals this year would be, um, first to hire an assistant, an admin salesperson. Mm. And then I want to do another big show this year and then open a gallery. Wow. Nice. So that's kind of on the, the pipeline. Great. So if people want to get in touch with you or view your work or something, your your website's the best. Yeah. So the website is www.cohenphotography.com. Mm-hmm. And then there's... Um, I'll drop a link in there too. Thank you. And then there's Instagram, Matthew Cohen Photography and Matthew Cohen Photography again for Facebook. Well, thanks. This is fun. Yeah. Thank you. And that was my talk with Matthew Cohen of Matthew Cohen Photography. Again, if you want to follow along and learn more about Matt, and keep up with him, maybe connect with his social media. The best way is through his website, which is cohenphotography.com. That's C-O-H-E-N photography.com. And there's plenty of links on his website. You can learn more about Matt. You can see his upcoming projects and what he's got in his stock gallery. And if you'd like to be notified when my new podcast comes out, or the next episode, I should say, the best way is visit chrisheaton.substack.com. That's C-H-R-I-S. H-E-A-T-O-N dot substack dot com. And uh, you may be prompted to enter your email address. You don't have to. There's some text below that that you can skip. But if you do enter your address, you will be notified uh, when I put out a new episode. Thank you for listening to Standing Before the Mass podcast with Chris Heaton, sponsored by Newport Nautical Supply. Please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.